Good afternoon and welcome to Marketing Live for Thursday, July 28th, 2016. I'm your host, Rob Zinkin. I serve as Associate Vice President for Marketing at Indiana University. Hope you're having a terrific summer and thanks for being a part of today's broadcast where we pose the question, are your meetings broken? Marketing Live is part of the Higher Ed Live Network, offering viewers direct access to the best and brightest minds in education and beyond. Live broadcasts allow viewers to share knowledge and participate in discussions around the most important issues in our industry. All episodes of Marketing Live are free and accessible in the video archives at higheredlive.com and in podcast format on iTunes. Today's live viewing experience is powered by Maestro, the premier marketing tech platform for broadcasters. Higher Ed Live is produced by M. Stoner, a marketing and communications firm that works with education institutions on branding, strategy, web design, and more. We're about to share a link to M. Stoner's ebook on information architecture, a well thought out, well organized structure for your content will make it easier for visitors to find information and engage with your institution. The ebook includes best practices and examples, so download that now. Well, I'm delighted to welcome Al Pitampali to Marketing Live. When it comes to thought leadership on having more effective meetings, Al always rises to the top of the list. He is author of the book, Read This Before Our Next Meeting, The Modern Meeting Standard. And we'll also talk about Al's newest book, Persuadable, How Great Leaders Change Their Minds to Change the World, which was released earlier this year. Al started his career as an IT consultant for Ernst & Young, where he advised Fortune 500 organizations all over the country. And now on his own, he helps organizations like NASA, Hewlett Packard, and Abbott Labs transform their organizational cultures. And he shares excellent, excellent content online in the form of blog posts and videos that are just great resources. So Al, welcome. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. So thank you for joining. It's a pleasure to be here, Rob. Well, great. I'd like to start by going beyond your bio and hearing some more about your story before we get into the topic of meetings. And when you think about your professional journey, is there any specific experience or person or book or any other noteworthy influence that has had a, a lasting impact on you and your career path? Um, I would say that Peter Drucker is kind of an intellectual that really kind of profoundly shifted the way I think about my career and just organization in general. I mean, for those of you who don't know who Peter Drucker is, he's kind of like the inventor of modern management. I, I, I kind of think of him as almost the Beatles of modern management because you know how, you know, if you listen to like any current song, uh, whether it be rock and roll or hip hop, you know, if you're a Beatles fan, you can kind of see the Beatles influence. You can say, you know what, I see some Lennon and McCarthy in there. Um, Drucker is like that in management. Uh, anything, you know, any kind of management stuff you see inside of organizations, whether it's in, in books or actually the, the implementation in organizations, it's kind of got some Drucker influence. So um, when I was kind of just getting started in my career and kind of developing this um, hatred of meetings, uh, I heard Peter Drucker and I read a lot of his stuff talking about meetings as a concession to deficient organizations. Um, and he kind of spoke my language. So he was a real influence on me. Yes, I think of so many things from the effective executive and mm -hmm. uh, trying to think of all the, the Drucker references that you have and things like the, if the mission were to speak, it would say get back to work right. uh, and really get really get after it. So, uh, well, I want to talk about uh, about higher education. And, and as we were talking about before, like 
Um, many other sectors, I'm sure, with a very meeting-driven culture, but that culture is exacerbated in higher education because we have a, a culture that is very and can be very consensus-driven. So we often talk about on Marketing Live how, as marketers, we have to influence rather than control in our decentralized environments. And we know for, for brand strategy work, for example, it's imperative to build internal buy-in. And all of this involves meetings, lots and lots of meetings. And you call meetings the lifeblood of any organization. And that's certainly the case in higher education. They're definitely necessary. But I want to start by asking this. Is there any value in using a different term? That is, meetings have such an overall negative connotation, just like strategic planning does. And but again, that they're the lifeblood of an organization. So I'm just curious if the terminology is something that that you've thought about or you've considered. I actually thought think a lot about that. I think the language we have around meetings and kind of the semantics is one of is one of the challenges. I mean, you know, when you think about how often we use the term meeting, I mean, I, you know, today I had a kind of call with a potential client. It was this one on one conversation over the phone. We call that a meeting. Uh, last week I gave a speech at a conference with a thousand attendees. They call that the annual meeting. I mean, the only thing these two things have in common is that we call them both meetings. Um, and I think that one of the reasons, I mean, it's not just semantics. I mean, there's, there's a real cost to this, which is I think that it obscures the purpose behind these gatherings, right? When you can call everything a meeting, it almost implies that the purpose of the session is to meet instead of the meeting being a vehicle through which we achieve some other purpose. And one of the things that I do with my work is to try to develop a robust vocabulary through which people can talk about meetings so we can cut through the bureaucratic nonsense and get to like, why the hell are we all in the room together? Yeah, and this question gets at, at that mindset when it comes to meetings that you, you think of everything in that, in that way, as you said, that it's, it's a meeting for the, the sake of having a meeting. So ideally, instead of that negative connotation, and we're going to talk about how we get there, but what should that mindset be towards a meeting? And when, when it's time for that meeting, what is, what is that uh, immediate thing? Uh, I guess another way to ask it is what should the brand, a brand for meetings really be? Well, I mean, the, the meeting is not really um, the important thing here. I mean, the, the, the meetings are a tool um, that are cousins with emails and phone calls and Slack and instant messaging. I mean, for some reason, we've kind of created this meeting and, and, and kind of blown it up into something that it's that it, more than it actually is, right? A meeting is a specific way to achieve a particular objective. It happens to be a very expensive way to achieve to achieve an objective. It's got incredible benefits, but it's also got extraordinary costs. So I think you know there's lots of things we can do to try to kind of euphemize meetings and to think about how we talk about them so that that way people develop a distaste or less of a distaste for them. But I think more importantly, what we need to do is is look behind uh, the covers and find out. Why is it that so many meetings are ineffective? Why is it that what lends itself uh, or these sessions to just um, kind of utter chaos in this diffusion of responsibility that happens inside a meeting where we don't seem to get from point A to point B? Mm -hmm. And before we talk about some of those specifics or mechanics of meetings, I, I do want to follow up on the, the culture point. 
and the, the culture that surrounds meetings because we, we do, we simply have too many meetings. So why is that? I mean, why do we have too many meetings? Is it a matter of we're not, we're not sure what to do, so we call a meeting to talk about it? So why do we have too many? And then where do we even begin? What do we do about it? I mean, there's a lot of reasons. It's almost there's a confluence of many factors, and we can't go over one of all of them. But you know, one of them is clearly that uh, meetings are convenient. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, if we want to send out a memo uh, to our staff of ten, writing is hard, right? It will take a lot of time to kind of cogently um, create a memo. But human beings, even the the least educated, are good talkers, right? We're just naturally innately good at language, at least verbally. So we can just get into a room together with 10 people and just talk our, you know, say our piece and boom, we, we, we kind of achieve our objective, uh, at an incredible cost. I would, I would, um, argue, but still we did at least, uh, achieve the objective. Um, but I think one of the things, um, that you had pointed out, which I think is one of the major factors that lead to this kind of culture of overmeeting is this idea that meetings are a concession to decision making anxiety right i mean as human beings when we uh face anxiety which everybody who's ever made an important decision does the kind of instinctual response is to gather around people. I mean, think about funerals are a, a kind of a morbid example of this where, you know, in time of grief, at a time of pain, we feel the need to get a lot of people around us. Meetings are like that in organizations. It's, it's decisions are scary. Decisions are hard. Issues that mean the, the life or the, the death of an organization or the, the success or failure of any particular project is really scary. So it's helpful to get people in a room together to kind of um, diffuse the responsibility and to kind of commiserate behind, wow, this is a really hard thing. Like, what do we do? Um, the problem is that that uh, strategy often leads to more confusion rather than more clarity. And I want to follow up on your point, Al, about the convenience, because I, I completely agree that one of the reasons that we have too many meetings is that it is way too easy to call a meeting, to convene a meeting. So any suggestions on ways that might create some sort of a, a process to make people pause and contemplate and think, is this meeting actually even worth it or is it necessary? Uh, some sort of meeting capital that might make you more thoughtful about, do I want to expend my, my meeting capital right now? Do I want to use this so there's some value or it's seen as uh, valuable rather than just, as you said, I can just go on somebody's calendar and look and see if they're available and boom, we're, we've scheduled a meeting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I've often thought of, you know, done these thought experiments where I thought to myself, you know, if if in order to call a meeting an organization, I mean, it's a pretty immense power, right? Like in any organization, if you know, we, they have these very tight budgets for people where if you're given a corporate credit card, it's almost like over a certain amount, it's usually not very high, you kind of have to get approval and there's high scrutiny over like a $50 purchase. And yet with a click of a button in any organization in America, in Outlook, you can schedule a meeting of like 10 people without any approval. And, you know, if you add up the salaries of those individuals, we're talking about, you know, extraordinary um, costs financially. So it is pretty extraordinary that we're given this, this immense power to, I call meetings uh, a weapon of mass interruption because of how costly, uh, how costly they can be. Um, now, is the answer to kind of 
create some kind of meeting tax where there is some type of approval process or there's some way of kind of making adding friction to that process i don't know people some organizations have have um experimented with that and i i, I my gut is that that's not the right direction to go i think the second the the real way to do it is is this kind of self-policing which is we the same way we the same process that we go through when we make any significant purchase or when we ever invest any amount of time and effort that you know is going to lead to kind of expensive consequences we pause for a second we reflect the best thing we can do is get somebody else's advice right because they're an objective party that might not be subjective to the same biases that we have and that's why i always recommend kind of like this designated driver of approach uh, where you, you know, especially when it comes to these big heavyweight meetings where you're talking about a lot of people in a room together, you know, s talk to somebody else about it first, you know, really conversate with them and say, hey, I want your feedback. I'm thinking about calling a meeting of this many people. Here's what the goal is. And they'll tell you if you give them the permission to give you feedback, you'll be amazed at how something that sounded so good in your mind a minute ago now seems like a terribly wasteful idea just because you had the, the, the um, feedback from somebody else. So I think that that's the kind of thing that leaders, responsible leaders, need to do more often to make sure that they're holding the right kinds of meetings. So you've talked through that perspective if, if you're the leader calling the, the meeting, but I want to flip to the other side. So if I, if I send that Outlook meeting request to you, Al, and it shows up on your, on your calendar, and so it, 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 I'm sure many people can relate to that and they get that meeting request. So what what's the next step on, on that end? What should the, the person be thinking or asking or um, what criteria should they be thinking about? Am I necessary to go to be at this meeting? Should I go to this meeting? How do you approach it on that end? And and maybe you feel like you shouldn't go to the meeting. I'm amazed. I, I continue to be amazed, but not surprised at how often people are willing to allow other people, whether their boss or their peers, hijack their own personal agendas. It, it really is. I mean, the idea that you would go to a meeting without knowing um, why you're going or what the value it is to the organization or you, to me, is confounding. Now, trust me, I understand because I was in the corporate world for a while and there's a pull for conformity. Um, but I think that it's something that everybody needs to um, really reflect on and realize that you only have so much time in your role in your organization and you have things you need to do yourself. So, you know, maybe it might be the path of least resistance to just go to that meeting, but think about you got objectives, you got work to be done. And if that doesn't get done at the end of the day, you're going to be hurting yourself. So I think when you first start with that attitude, then the second question becomes, okay, how do I do this without getting fired? Right? How do I approach my boss in, in a tactful, in a diplomatic way? And and there are tactics for doing that, right? Like one of them is to play play dumb. The one thing that I, I tell people, you know, instead of being the aggressive person, I, I often get accused of being a little bit of a provocateur. But um, instead of being the person who is kind of starting fires, be the person that's just ignorant. You know, your boss sends you a meeting invitation. And you say, hey, you know, I just wanted to, you know, you send him an email back, you, you, you go approach him and you say, hey, I just wanted to be really well prepared for this meeting. Can you tell me, can you let me know? Because I wasn't really clear on like, so what's the, what's the goal of it? Like, what are, what are some of the objectives? Like, what are, what are some of the reasons why you think that I'd be, um, I'd be useful at this meeting? 
And what you're doing is you're kind of forcing that person, your boss, your, your colleague, to kind of think through why the hell are we getting in a room together? And I think that process, that exchange uh, it, that happens in a meaningful conversation is so critical. And it's probably the key to getting to the million dollar question, which is why are we having this meeting to begin with? Um, and that's often your way out. So then let's let's assume that the why is addressed and there's a, a great reason to come together as a team. So I want to get to the actual meeting. And again, as, as you articulate, we all want meetings that are productive and energizing and purposeful. So where do we start there? It, it almost seems like that can be overwhelming because there are a variety of considerations. So let's let's stop with um, thinking about those those preparation pieces. And if I'm running a meeting, what are the things that I need to address ahead of time and the decisions that I need to make ahead of time going into a meeting to do the proper preparation to ensure it will be productive, it will be energizing, it will be purposeful. Are you talking about a meeting leader or as, a, as an attendee or both? As a meeting leader, as a meeting okay. leader. There's lots of considerations and, and I think that there, um, you know, some are more important than others, especially depending on the kinds of meetings, but one of the most fundamental questions you can ask yourself um, as a meeting leader that will set the stage for how you operate the meeting is, is this meeting for is this meeting designed to speed things up or are we trying to slow things down? So here's what I mean by that. So when it comes to decisions uh, in organizations where most meetings when you when you drill down to it revolve around some kind of decisions that need to be made or communicated, there's some kind of issue at stake that needs to be resolved essentially. So the question you need to ask yourself is, is this the kind of decision that is a little bit more of a low stakes decision where the goal should be to try to resolve this as quickly as possible so we can get back to the matter at hand and kind of move things forward? Because the way you operate a, a meeting with a low stakes decision where you really want to try to get past an issue as quickly as possible um, because a good enough decision is good enough is very different than the kind of big, big uh, high stakes issues um, that we have in organizations that really mean a great deal, right? Like we can't just have a good enough decision. We need a great decision. We need to really um, do our due diligence. That kind of meeting is going to operate a lot differently because your, your goal is not to speed up, it's to try to slow down. Everything we know about effective decision-making from the academic literature, as well as just kind of the experience of, of successful decision-making leaders is that the key to making good decisions is robust debate. It's about um, what the decision-making literature calls moderate task conflict, which is an exchange of ideas, criticism, judgment. This is the kind of thing that as a leader you should foster in a meeting that is designed to slow down and to, to debate very hefty issues. But it's the exact opposite approach for issues that are smaller, that are small fish that you just need to go um, through as quickly as possible, get consensus as quickly as possible, try to get you know as minimal buy-in as you can, and then say, okay, guys, uh, now we need to get back to work. Our ability to run meetings effectively um, is completely dependent on our ability to prioritize those two types of things. When is an issue in an organization important enough that it, war it warrants kind of a more heavyweight debate-oriented meeting, and when is it kind of small fry 
that the goal should just be to speed things up, to get by and to communicate a decision and then move on. And uh, it's an important distinction there. And I want to ask further about the, the smaller issues. Uh, one of the things that I remember from your book, one of my favorite comments was uh, from read this before our next meeting, you said that meetings should be less like, uh, I think it was the endless commercials during a football game and more like pit stops at the, at the Daytona 500. And, and I, I love that mentality of a, of a fast paced, focused approach to meetings where again, you know things are gonna happen quickly and they're going to get done as opposed to just sort of the meandering and wandering and boredom that, that sometimes ensues. So any specific tips on trying to get to that level and get to that sort of uh, culture that you have for meetings that they are productive, they are fast paced, and, and how should you as a leader uh, approach meetings to, to be able to have those sort of sorts of outcomes? Well, one of the things that's so critical in in organizational culture is is trust, right? I mean, we need to have this implicit agreement. It actually needs to be made explicit, which is that in an organization, we just, if everybody gets consulted on every single decision, we will never make any progress. There will no, be no speed, there will be no innovation, there will be no agility. So this kind of, a, this social contract has to be reached where we say that, listen, for when, if I'm a leader, for big decisions, right, for decisions of import in an organization, stuff that, that is sensitive, that is controversial, that affects my team in a very profound way. I promise you, my, my agreement with you is that I'm going to consult you. I'm going to get your feedback. I'm going to kind of get your buy-in because I want to make sure I'm making the right decisions. When it comes to smaller issues, the kind that you had just pointed out, the agreement needs to be different. The agreement needs to be, listen, in order to reserve time for those bigger issues, I need your permission to be able to make some decisions quickly. I need your decision to, to make some decisions, even if you don't love it, even if in the moment you have some judgment. If we're in a meeting and I, and I voice that, listen, this is kind of a smaller decision versus a bigger decision, you have to be willing to play with me, you know? And it's, it's often that conversation that doesn't happen in advance that prevents, that has these 20 minute meetings turn into two hour meetings because you don't have those expectations. And so now one person disagrees or is a little upset. So you feel the need to spend an hour trying to get buy-in, wherein the teams that have sufficient trust are able to deal with that conflict in a much more kind of agile way. And just a, a quick reminder for viewers, if you have a question, if you have a comment, please tweet using the hybrid live hashtag. I'd love to hear from others about their struggles and experiences when it comes to meetings at their college or university. And I want to ask you, Al, about informational meetings and uh, if they serve a purpose or not. And in my case, the example that comes to mind is I hold a meeting of unit leaders once a month and we get together to discuss items and issues that cut across all of our areas. And this team is housed on two different campuses, so I see value in having that rare time where we are all around the same table. So this would be more of an informational meeting. I would consider it an informational meeting. So do you have any specific recommendations on those informational meetings and should we even be having those? Well, so I have a lot of principles that I kind of outlined in my book and my work. And But the rule of thumb is, regardless of all those principles, if a meeting is working, then it's working. You know, the, the, the kind of throw the principles out of the rule because if it works for you and your organization, then it's 
then it's probably adding value. But the caveat is what you think might be working, uh, your people don't necessarily think is working. And what you think is a successful meeting, people think is, is disastrous. So you have to be, the feedback channels have to be open. You have to be willing to kind of ask people what they really think and, and that kind of thing. That being said, um, when it comes to informational meetings, um, one of the things that, that kind of influenced, um, or one of the organizations that influenced my thought in informational meetings is, is in the educational world, but the um, Sal Khan and his Khan Academy. So those of, I'm sure you guys are very, both uh, of your audience is familiar with Khan Academy, but his story really quickly, Sal Khan was a, was a hedge fund guy who um, didn't like being in a hedge fund, but he really liked tutoring his cousins in algebra. Um, and so the problem was his cousins were halfway across the world. So he started recording his, um, himself in videos, teaching algebra, and then uploading them to YouTube on the web. And so what he uh, predicted happened, which is his cousins started using the videos on their own time in a different time zone. They loved it. What he never would have imagined is that the videos would spread, that millions of people all over the world would start to stumble across these videos and start teaching themselves um, everything from algebra now to science to world history. Um, it was almost like this revolution was occurring. And, and Sal Khan saw this and he asked himself, well, what, what is going on? If people are learning at home on the web, then what is the classroom for? And this was almost, this was like a profound kind of crisis he had. And he, and he came to this, this realization, which is that we should flip the classroom. We should, this, the lesson, the script, we should actually do at home and we should do the homework in class. See, what Sal, Sal Khan realized is that the scarce time, the important time is the time you have in the group, right? That when the teacher is live or there, that's where you should be discussing the interesting stuff, the complex stuff, the fun stuff, right? Get, get the boring kind of stuff, everything you can out of the way before you actually show up to the classroom. The reason why I tell you this story is because I think that same kind of thinking needs to happen when it comes to organizations and meetings, right? We have this scarce time, very expensive synchronized time that we have in a room with our staff. So the question is, what do we wanna get out of the room? What do we wanna get out of the way so we can maximize the time with the team? So you may have like 60 minutes of thing, uh, of stuff that you wanna communicate to your team in this informational meeting, but maybe only 30 minutes of it, maybe only 20 minutes of it is actually the kind of stuff that's really important that's controversial, that's fun, that's exciting, that is complex enough that you really want to have a dialogue. Get the 30 or 40 minutes of communication out of the way. Send a memo in advance. Hell, do what we're doing. You know, Record yourself on camera, send it to them in advance, let them consume that, and then you have a much more productive and engaging and, and much shorter session that people walk away from energized, feeling like they maximize that live time. It's it's interesting to think about the uh, you know being on the the recipient side again, and you you talk about that the uh, modern meeting rejects the unprepared. So I think sometimes we think of as a meeting attendee, not necessarily leading a meeting, but uh, attendee that our our job is maybe to show up and it's a passive role. So how do you sort of shift that where the onus is on those who are in attendance and they they know that the expectation in this meeting is that it's going to be very participatory and they have a clear role. Um, and I guess to elaborate on that, 
I think uh, a lot of people would talk about, well, uh, common meeting practices, you need to send out an agenda in advance and have clear action items and takeaways. But I want to dig a little bit deeper um, in terms of that point about rejecting the un underprepared and what the obligation is as a leader running the meeting and then really what the onus on the meeting attendees should be to ensure that uh, these objectives that we have in our meetings are accomplished. Well, one of the things you said, which I think is actually kind of um, um, an interesting thing that I think is often neglected is that, you know, communicating the role to the attendee, right? Like really one, the, one of the important things in order to make sure that meeting attendees are prepared is to actually communicate to them why they're at the meeting. I mean, it's amazing how like, uh, you know, I work with leaders all the time, you know, often senior leaders and they have, you know, these staffs of maybe eight people, um, at least the ones that kind of report directly to them. And um, every meeting, all eight people are there. All eight people he invites to every, virtually every single one of these meetings. And what he's basically training them to think is that, oh, I'm basically, uh, dispensable. I'm just like everyone else. This is just a formality. I'm coming. Um, I have no real unique contribution. And that is a real mistake because for two reasons. One is because it's a demoralizing way to think about yourself. Secondly, the decision-making research shows that when people are primed to know what their unique contribution to the meaning is, they actually contribute unique information to the meeting and then actually leads, leads to better decision-making. So the, the point is you need to sell people a little bit, right? Like imagine for a second, I know that the kind of the culture of organizations with that, which I think is terrible, it's an abomination, is that when you, when you send an invite to a meeting, if it's your boss, people have to attend, right? It's not, it's not optional, right? There's, it's not like, you know, uh, oh, if, if I don't like the meeting, I won't attend. No, it's, it's essentially the culture is that it's kind of this, it's almost like receiving a, a subpoena to attend uh, a court, right? Like if you don't come, you're gonna go to jail. But if you're a meeting leader, pretend for a second that that wasn't true. Pretend that every person was empowered to opt out of your meeting if they wanted to. How would you sell them, right? You, you would probably do two things. You would say, one, here's the benefits of the meeting. Here's why we're actually having the meeting. Here's the benefits to me, to the organization. But here's, but two, here's why you're such a valuable part of this meeting. Here's why only you and only you um, need to be here because you have a particular contribution that other people don't have, right? Maybe it's because um, they have a particular unique skill set. You know, maybe they have an engineering mindset. Maybe they're just really good at uh, brainstorming. Maybe it's that they are um, extra critical. Um, and you want them to play kind of the role of the devil's advocate. Whatever it is, if you can kind of give people a unique uh, understanding of why you pick them, I guarantee you their, their willingness to come prepared and to do homework will go up by an order of magnitude. I love that. Great, great advice. Something for us all to think about when we, when we schedule those meetings or plan those meetings. But I know we, we have listeners and viewers who are in, in that boat where they, they feel like the meetings are, are just draining and not, not a worthwhile use of their time. They'd rather be doing real work. So you, you talked about the opportunity to reach out in advance and, and ask about what's going to happen and the, the purpose of the meeting. But I'm interested in any other everyday leadership opportunities for attendees. You know, what do you, what do, you do? How do you approach that? How do you 
sort of, you're, you're not running the meeting, but uh, again, an everyday leadership opportunity where you can uh, step forward and, and, and try to shift things in a way that, that makes this a more valuable use of your time and everyone's time. Yeah, I mean, I think questions are a really good way to do this. I mean, I, I think that really questions are great because what a question does is it guides focus, right? If I ask you a question, you know, what, what does an elephant look like? What I just do, I just completely guided your attention into a different thing. Now you're actually thinking about what an elephant looks like. Yeah. So if we can, it, the, the most valuable contribution attendees can make is to ask questions that guide the meeting towards its destination. Right. So what what will event what will always happen in a meeting is you'll start with point A and then hopefully you will try to meander towards point B, um, which is the destination, the objective of the meeting. But along the way, it will always get derailed. Right. That's just almost the human condition that we get distracted. We start to um, focus on things that aren't as important. And so the asking questions like, OK, so what what exactly are we trying to accomplish here? Or can you tell me what the, you know, if somebody started to raise an issue, can you tell me what that issue contributes to um, the conversation? Or, you know, you know, how do we make sure that we uh, address this issue that's on the agenda here that isn't currently being addressed? These things are crucial um, for attendees to do because sometimes the meeting leaders are so busy leading the meeting, they don't have the kind of, cognitive bandwidth to make sure that some of these things get addressed and the meeting kind of gets in the right direction. Yeah. I also want to circle back to your, your comments as you made that distinction between an organization's really heavy items that need substantive debate versus some of the, the smaller items that, that you can churn through more quickly and, and go back to the point about decisions. And, and you've said that meetings don't make decisions, that leaders make decisions. So when we think about the decision-making processes, what role should meetings play? I mean, should we primarily think of meetings that is as a way to support a decision that's already been made, as a way to have some of that debate on the front end before a decision is made? How do we, how should we uh, in large part think about the decision-making process in conjunction with meetings? Well, the first thing you do is you think about the decision-making pro pro uh, process completely divorced from the meeting, right? Don't even think about the meeting. And, and this is a, a very useful time to stop and just actually acknowledge what a decision-making process is. Because it's such it's one of those vague, ambiguous terms that we hear so much that our kind of brain just shuts off when we hear think about that. It's, the, it's one of the most important things that leaders can really understand. A decision-making process is just a series of steps that gets you from the, the problem that you're trying to solve to the actual resolution, to the to the decision that where it actually gets made. Just those steps. And they don't have to be complicated, right? So for any decision that I need to make, let's say it's buying a car, a decision-making progress process could be two steps, right? Like step one, I uh, reach out to a bunch of friends to find out what their thoughts are and what the best cars are. Two, I sit in my room, think about that information, and I make a decision myself. That is a completely valid, common, and useful decision-making process. And a, no, and a meeting wasn't even a part of that, right? So we need to prove to ourselves that we don't need a meeting necessarily to make a decision. Now, in organizations, on the other hand, it turns out that meetings often are a really good way to, um, um, to make decisions and to 
uh, to open up ideas, to, but you need to start with the decision-making process first before you start thinking about the meeting. So what is the process? What, what, what kind of decision is this? What are the steps that I need to take? Do I first want to, usually a decision-making process starts out with generating ideas, right? We want, to, we want to open up the floor to make a lot of different options. Then you probably want a, uh, what we call convergence, where we start to whittle away some of those options so we start to arrive at the best option. And then the third uh, step to a decision-making process is often kind of the resolution where we actually make the decision. Where does the meeting fit into those, right? Maybe you want a meeting for the first part. So maybe you want a brainstorming session so to make sure that lots of people are heard and then you get a lot of ideas. Maybe the meeting uh, happens for the second part where you yourself and maybe with a colleague start to actually develop all the ideas. And then in the second, um, the second phase, you need people's help to actually um, start to whittle away the decisions. The point is there's a million ways to use the meeting, but it's the last step deciding where the meeting is. You start with the decision-making process and then figure out where in the process to actually use the meeting. Yeah. And uh, another, another thing that comes to mind in, in thinking through that is the, um, again, I, I mentioned earlier in higher ed, a, a brand strategy process where we need to get a lot of buy-in throughout the university and, and get our colleagues to understand and value uh, and be a part of, of what's happening. And some of those discussions may take the form of a meeting. But at the same time, when you get a lot of people together, you can have a situation where uh, a bold idea, those uh, corners sort of get rounded off, the idea gets watered down a little bit. And I'm sure there are colleagues who are trying to strike that appropriate balance between you know, using the meeting as a vehicle to uh, bring people together and, and understand and be a part of that process but at the same time, not have the consequence of that being, well, we have, a, we have an idea that's, that's essentially watered down and we're not taking the sort of the bold step forward that we were originally intending or hoping to do. Yeah, and that's why I think that almost every, and there's probably some exceptions to this, but for pretty much all decisions in organizations, the way leaders should think about it is the final step in the process is the leader decides. Right? The leader has to be the final uh, part of the, the process, right? Because, listen, consensus is an amazing thing. We should all strive for consensus in an organization. But consensus is devilishly elusive sometimes, right? I mean, how many times have we tried to achieve consensus and it just doesn't happen the way you want it to? That's why the leader needs to always be the what I call the decision owner, the person who at the end of the day is accountable for the quality and the speed of a decision. Now, a decision owner isn't necessarily a decision maker. You know, as a decision owner, you can say to yourself, you know what, I want the group to decide this. Let's go, let's get it, let's look for consensus. Um, but if the group can't make the decision the way you thought they would, well, then the decision owner has to then insert himself to the process and then become the tiebreaker and then ultimately make sure the decision is made. The same thing that happens when it comes to innovation, right? I mean, when uh, there's so many, like you just pointed out, so many times where, you know, you go through the consensus process, you get your committee together, and the decision that kind of emerges is just this terrible kind of bland, committee-esque, bureaucratic thing. And the decision-making leader has to be able to stand up and say, you know what, this didn't work. You know, we're going to have to, I'm going to have to come, you know, get together with Bob and, and uh, Mary 
and we're going to have to figure out whether there's a better way to do this. That sounds almost kind of scandalous in an organization because it feels like, well, you know, this leader is a dictator. He's not being part of the team. This is the essence of leadership. The essence of leadership is constantly moving back and forth between the decisive leader who uh, knows that the, we're short on time, we need to make a decision, and we need to go in this direction, even though a lot of people think we need to move this direction, to the persuadable leader over here where we need to gather opinions, have a healthy amount of self-doubt and humility, and be willing to defer to consensus and kind of uh, the collective opinion of the group. Yeah, and that's a great segue, Al, to to transition to your new book, a newest book, Persuadable. And I would say higher education certainly is among the, the many industries that is experiencing unprecedented change. And in that book, you make the point that because we're all facing some degree of uncertainty and because change is happening more rapidly than ever, that it's actually being persuadable as a leader that is undervalued but instead we're often more concerned with being persuasive and that's what we typically think of as leadership. And not that being persuasive is not important, but that being persuadable can be a competitive leadership advantage. So how did you get there? How did you arrive at that conclusion? Well, it was, it was along the train of thought that you know I was just on, which is this idea that I spent the last kind of five years um, or at least after the the first book came out, writing the book and, and talking about it, talking about decisive leadership, this idea that in organizations, we just so often are just over-talking almost trivial decisions to death, where because leaders don't want to just hurt some feelings sometimes and make a decision and move on, right? That often happens inside of polite organizations. But at the same time, what I really realize is that for the big decisions, the, the ones that actually are of import, that really mean a lot to the organization, we need to do the opposite. Being decisive is not the right way to do it. We need to actually be persuadable, willingness to change our minds in the face of evidence, being willing to get lots of different opinions from different people. This is a critical part of being a leader, and I think that it's almost sometimes we're, we're too decisive too or sometimes we're too persuadable. we got to be willing to do both. And I think that the one thing that I think a lot of some of the most successful leaders have a problem with is being persuadable because it feels like a weakness. But in a world that's changing faster than ever, I actually think it's the ultimate leadership advantage. Yeah, you're exactly right. That It certainly goes against what people may think of when it comes to a, a strong leader and that uh, traditional leadership approach of, of being strong and confident and consistent. So uh, I want to dive into that a little bit more and see if you, you could share an example or two from the book or elsewhere where the persuadable leadership approach has proven to be especially effective. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I start out the book by talking about Admiral William McRaven, who's the um, arguably the most successful commander and in, in military commander in recent history. He's the guy who most famously oversaw the, the raid to get Osama bin Laden. And when we think about military leaders, if you kind of just, if I were to just kind of like snap my fingers and ask you to give me some characteristics of what you think successful military leaders would uh, should be or, or are like, you'd probably come up with words like confident, you know, convicted, consistent. Because um, these are the kinds of things that culturally we associate with successful leadership. Um, but Admiral William McRaven, what was so shocking when I first read the account of him, wasn't like that at all. I mean, in many ways, McRaven was inconsistent. 
right? He was constantly changing his mind. He was unusually open to suggestion, and he seemed to go out of his way to make sure he wasn't overconfident. He would constantly kind of hedge and doubt himself. Um, that doesn't mean that he wasn't physically a very kind of uh, imposing person, but he had this intellectual uh, habit of making sure that he was opening his mind to suggestions and willing, being willing to, to kind of engage with contradict, contradictory evidence. And I thought that was so shocking and surprising, almost like he was an outlier. But then I realized that there's a reason why he's that way. It's because he's the leader of special operations. And special operations um, are unconventional. They're full of surprises. They are, by definition, special, right? The world in special operations is constantly changing. The enemy is constantly adapting um, to every move you make. A decisive leader, somebody who's a stay-the-course kind of person who's so confident that they have the right plan, fails in those kinds of environments um, because as soon as they think they have the right answer, the world changes and they no longer have the right answer. So McRaven was such a great example of how a persuadable leader in the military is so, is so important right now because the military is changing faster than ever. But think about every industry, think about the world you're in, think about the world that I'm in. I know that my world is changing faster than ever, right? I mean, the, the, with globalization, with the increase in technology, with just the, the rapid pace and kind of the way organizations have to, to shift to, to market demands and stuff like that, we're all in special operations, meaning that we all need to tend towards being persuadable, um, being willing to change our mind with changing circumstances. Well, that's something that I, I appreciate about your work, Al, is that you you push us to, to think a little bit differently, whether it's this uh, in terms of being persuadable as a leader or even going back to meetings, that meetings that we think of as this every day, you know, we have five, six, seven, eight a day, but something that should be uh, something sacred and special and uh, play a really special role in the life of an organization. And as we wrap up, I want to circle back and, and close on meetings. And you've been at this for a while and have studied meetings and have written about it, experienced it, consulted. And I'm interested if your viewpoint has, uh, has shifted at all along the way or, or there have been any new revelations or uh, things that you've learned since you, you first wrote the Modern Meeting Standard, uh, sort of how your perspective on meetings has, has evolved, if it, if it has at all. Uh, it has evolved, and um, that's why I actually wrote, uh, there's a second edition of my book that just came out um, last year in, um, in September, where I was luckily given the opportunity, they re-released it because they wanted to, um, uh, the publisher wanted to, to get it to a new audience, and I was lucky enough to kind of be able to amend the modern meeting standards. So I, I encourage anybody who's read the first edition of the book, read the second book, because you'll find that there's a lot of, um, there's some significant differences in there. And I admit it, you know, like that's what's so funny about, you know, you see this in politics, people can't admit to changing their mind or they're perceived as a flip-flopper. I'm happy to be called a flip-flopper because I think that's uh, part of being in, an intelligent human being. Um, but, you know, rather than, rather than articulate kind of all the differences, which I think the, the book does better justice in doing that, I, would, I, I think I'd use this as, as an opportunity to just encourage people to realize that the world is changing and we do need to be able to change our minds with changing circumstances. And, you know, 
a decision you made today shouldn't necessarily be a decision you're going to make tomorrow. Just because you chose a certain path last week doesn't mean you can't um, turn course because you know that's the responsibility of successful leaders is to make sure that they're not just going in the direction that makes them look good, they're going in a direction that serves their organizations, their communities, their, their team, and just society in general. Well, Al, I can't thank you enough for all the terrific advice and lessons that we can all benefit from. So thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise. I've really enjoyed it. It's my pleasure, Robert. Well, for viewers and listeners who want more of this content, where should they go to connect with you and, and benefit more from your work? You can go uh, to um, modernmeetingstandard.com. If you just search modern meeting in Google, it'll come up. But uh, yeah, that's my blog. You can see a lot of the content I put together. I've also dedicated a section to how to run an effective meeting. Um, you could probably spend an hour there and really develop some, some better meeting habits. Great. Well, thanks again to Al Pitampali, and thanks as always to M. Stoner for making Marketing Live possible. Be sure to get reminders about this and other episodes by subscribing to the Higher Ed Live newsletter. You can browse the archives at higheredlive.com or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I'm Rob Zinkin. Thanks again for tuning in to Marketing Live on the Higher Ed Live Network.